Okay, we're going to pray. Lord God, thank you because the earth is full of your steadfast love. And Lord, we, we often are oblivious to it because we live with it so much around us. And so we are grateful for it. We pray that you would give us eyes to see your steadfast love throughout the whole earth. We pray that you be with us as we jump into this class, as we look at Psalm 33. We continue to pray for Eve and Tina's daughter, Mandy, and uh, after this week of um, um, chemo, and we pray that you would help her uh, to maintain her stamina and her energy, and that uh, there'd be no nausea, and that um, we pray for the end result to be that the cancer is put in full remission, Lord, and uh, we cry out to you for that. Bless us for our time now, and watch over all of ours who are out traveling at this point, the Schopners and Don Gillies and others, Lord, keep them safe and preserve them, and bring them back to us in Jesus' name, amen. Maybe Wes was right, maybe it's my jacket. Let's try this. So Wes is in Minko, he fills in down there because they don't have a, a pastor anymore, so he'll be there also next week. So you won't see Wes for a couple of weeks, uh, but that's where he is. So we're at Psalm 33, so let's read Psalm 33 and then um, watch for things that connected to the previous psalm, uh, maybe something that reminds you of something coming in the psalms, any connections within the psalm, we're looking for repeats, refrains, etc. Shout for joy in Yahweh, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to Yahweh with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of Yahweh is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of Yahweh. By the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made, and by the breath, or the ruach, the spirit, by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a, as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear Yahweh. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Yahweh brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsels of Yahweh stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Yahweh looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of Yahweh is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for Yahweh. He is our help and our shield. For, for our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Yahweh, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Anything stick out to you that connects to previous psalms, that are refrains, repeats, things that just, you know, sirens and flashing lights for you?
Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Anybody else? Others? Yeah. Yeah, all, there's three places in this psalm about the chesed, the steadfast love of Yahweh. Probably one of the key themes. What else? It does. Yes. Yes. So it connects that first verse. It, it goes along with the very last verse of Psalm 32. Same language, same words. Okay, what else? Anybody else? Yeah. Yeah, for David to write this is really intriguing because he's a warrior. And for him to say those words. So we'll get to those, but that's good. Very good. All right, great. Well, let's just jump in then. Good job. So I'm calling this Say Again. Who really rules? There you go. But I think that that's, uh, that's my title for the, whole, for the psalm. And so here's how I'm going to break it down. And actually, the breakdown goes with the pattern that I'm, that's in there. You could actually do this in different directions. But uh, you notice verse one, and se- 1 through 7 is word and worship. And then there's a response being called for in verses 8 through 9. And then I think the very centerpiece of the whole psalm and the, uh, the chief part of it uh, is contrast and control in verses 10 through 12. And then it goes to war and wonder, verses 13 through 19. And then a final response is being called for in those last three verses. So that's how I'm going at this. And I'm trying to do this visually so you can see how the psalm actually is crafted, maybe, if that helps out. And if it doesn't, don't worry about it. It works for me. So I don't know. All right, so word and worship, verses 1 through 7. So Fred brought this up, how verse... One and the last verse of verse 32 go together. So here's verse 32. Be glad in Yahweh and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Shout for joy in Yahweh, O righteous, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. It's interesting how close they go together. Makes a few commentators think that maybe these two psalms were one psalm at one point. Uh, it's very likely that David wrote the first one, verse uh, Psalm 32, and he had Psalm 33 already in, in mind or in place. And so they're meant to go together, not necessarily that they're one long psalm. Okay? And so that's the hinge verse. Verse 1 is the hinge verse that draws in and connects very closely to Psalm 32. So notice the emotional spectrum in this psalm. You get a loud and noisy, rambunctious worship service at the very beginning. The shouting, praise, which is... Uh, uh, and giving thanks, making melody, there's musical instruments, sing to him a new song, play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. So we're back to loud shouts. But then you get down to verse 8. Here's the next part of the emotional spectrum. Fear, let the earth fear Yahweh, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. And then it seems quieter when you get down to verse 21 th- or 20 through 22. Our soul waits for Yahweh. Uh, and he is our help and our shield, our heart is glad in him, etc. And so it seems that the psalm is filled with an emotional spectrum from one extreme, well, not extreme, but from one end to the other, okay? And I think that that's 
instructive in and of itself as we think about our worship service as a proper and fitting place. Caitlin had asked the question the other day, is a proper and fitting place for us to be very loud and vocal? We do this with our music sometimes, right? So some of our hymns, for example, do not require loud music. They're actually intended to be minor key, very quiet, meditative, and some of the songs we sing in the hymn, from the hymnal, for example, are very boisterous and loud. They're meant to be boisterous and loud. We're going to sing one today at the end of the service, sing choirs of New Jerusalem. You should be, I mean, belting them out, right? Because that's what it's meant for. It's the way it's meant. And so I appreciate the emotional spectrum here because in our worship services, there needs to be some sense of that emotional spectrum as well. Not everybody who walks into church is happy, right? You know, bad things have happened, and there's a place for lamenting, but on the other side, we're not supposed to be a bunch of Eeyores all the time. You know, I'll just go in the corner and eat my thistle, right? So there's a sense of both. So both those, and then right in the middle is the fear of the Lord. I just wanted to point out the emotional spectrum in the psalm. So the first three verses are because, well, actually, just look at the first three verses very quickly. How is, the, how is that laid out, all the music and the singing, how is that laid out? What is, what's included in it? Yeah, interesting, plays skillfully, right? So there's a sense of skillfulness in our worship and the, the, the musicians playing. What else? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. We're right, right. So it's not just everybody just shouting at different things, right? Yeah. So there's a make melody hymn with a harp of ten strings. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Which would have been very common in that day. You know, more common instruments instead of uh, you know elite instruments, maybe. Though there's a place for that. When you get to Psalm 150, I mean, it's cymbals and trumpets and all kinds of things. So there's nothing wrong with having different instruments. Yeah. Great. Okay, so looking at verses 1 through 3 then, verses 1 through 3 are because of, because of what? Okay, and here's a hint. Look for the word for. Verses 1 through 3 are because of something. Look for the word for. Okay, I've got three different answers here. This is awesome. Great. So who said for the joy of the Lord? Did somebody say for the joy of the Lord? Yes, shout for joy. Very good. Okay, so there's a sense of that there. What else? What was the other one? For the word of the Lord. Notice verse 4. After all these shouts and praise, he tells you in verse 4 why. The because of statement. For the word of Yahweh is upright. Here's why the music, here's why the singing and shouting, it's based on the decree of God, it's based upon the word of Yahweh, okay? Is that instructive by any chance in any way? I mean, notice that our emotions are involved, don't get me wrong, emotions are important, God gave them to us, that's what it is to be human, is to have emotions, okay? But notice that this whole, as he's panning, as he's uh, uh, mapping out here this this worship assembly, if you want to call it that, notice it's, it's based on what God has said, right? It's based upon the word of the Lord. And I find that really important. Have you ever heard anybody divide a worship service 
well, I didn't make it to the worship. I just came to hear the preaching. No! It all goes together. Right? So the singing is all based upon, or should be based upon, you know, what God has said, the Word, right? And the Word feeds into worship. I mean, it all goes back and forth into the singing and praise, right? It all should go together in some sense. It doesn't have to go mechanically together, but it should fit together. So very good. Um, Notice, uh, Tina brought this up. Notice steadfast love. The steadfast love of the Lord shows up in all these verses, 5, 18, and 22. Verse into verse 5, the earth is full of the steadfast love of Yahweh. Verse um, 18, behold the eye of Yahweh is on those who fear Him, on those who hope hope in His steadfast love. And then verse 22, let your steadfast love, O Yahweh, be upon us even as we hope in you. And so it ends with that prayer of the very thing that God is lavish, asking for more of it. Okay? Four. Four. That was John Harris. Four. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But notice that all those go together, right? So the word is is because of who God is in his own decree. In fact, notice what's the what's the background scene as you think about verses four through uh, through seven or even down through verse nine. What's the background scene? Creation. In fact, we'll get to that in a minute. But Genesis one is the background scene. And so there, what do you have? You have both word and action together. Let let there be light. Let there, let there be, you know, lights in the sky. Right? And so word and action go together. And so that, that's why he's piling them up that way, Pam. Pam, is because they all fit together. Right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. But that's a good call. Very good. Great. Anybody else? So I want you to notice the end of verse 5. Mesopotamians. Syrians, Babylonians, and Western secularists, that'd be our neighborhood, could never sing the end of verse 5. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord, right? They could not sing verse 5 because nobody believed it. Mesopotamians did not believe that Marduk had steadfast love. Marduk was all about Marduk, right? And he didn't give love, he took. He took whatever he wanted. He made humans just to serve him only and to feed him and so forth. There was no sense of steadfast love. The same with Babylonian gods, the same with Syrian gods, the same with Greek. Just go read the Iliad and the Odyssey. I mean, Zeus is an incestuous alcoholic, right? And he wants whatever you got. And you got to placate him. There's no love, right? And the same thing with Western secularists. They don't even believe in God to begin with. So they couldn't sing the end of verse 5. The steadfast love of the Lord fills the earth. Nobody can sing that. But those who know Yahweh and those who know especially His Son. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Right. Alan. I'm going to get to it. Yes. Thank you very much. It's excellent. But that's an important phrase. That statement, a new song, is extremely important. Um, It usually is a song, well, I'll just tell you now, it's usually a song written at a new point in salvation history when God has done something unique. And then you get like, and you get into Revelation, you ladies doing a Revelation study, you're going to get over to uh, chapter 15 or something like that, the the, the song of Moses and the Lamb. It's a new song, right? And it's a new place in salvation history. And so um, that's usually the background or the, the back thought behind when you see the phrase, a new song. So it's very fitting. This is one of the things I have to say to my strict psalm-only singing brothers, right? Those who say the only thing you should sing is just the psalms. Is I have to say, wait, there's a place for the new song. Because God is still alive and still active. And they're not inspired like the Psalms. It's very fitting for us to do that. You know. Good. So yes, here we go. So, talking about the new song. This is from uh, Patrick Henry Reardon. He says, The song of the believers is always a new song because it springs from an inner divine font. It is a song of those who are born again in Christ and therefore walk in newness of life. The song of the Lord's redeemed is a new song. For they adhere to the new covenant in Christ's blood and serve in the newness of the Spirit, etc. And he's just primarily focusing on Christians, but even as David is writing this, there's some event that has happened that brings him to sing and to write a new song, memorializing some new act of God's work. Okay? And this is one of the things I like about the Gettys songs, for example, is because it is a new song. Right? It's a new season in the church's history, and they're very thoughtful about it, besides making it for congregations to sing. It's very fitting for us to have literally new songs as we move through history, while we continue to draw in, just like David did, from the past. Right? So it's very fitting. But I love the way he puts that there. Anybody else? Okay, so uh, continue on, word and worship. One of the major themes that shapes verses 4 through 7, and is very clear when you get to verse 6 and 7, is what? What is uh, one of the major themes? We already said it. Talked about creation, right? In fact, it's very interesting, verse 6 and 7, the word of Yahweh, by the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made by the breath, and then in the Hebrew, that's ruach, which means spirit. By the spirit of his mouth, all their host. And so you can't miss, you think about Genesis 1, right? What's hovering, who is hovering over all creation? The spirit, right? And then he speaks and he says, let there be light, right? And so he's, he's bringing that in. And so the, there's a connection then between um, Bidbar, Yahweh, the word of Yahweh, and Baruch, Baruach Yahweh in verse 6 and it's word and spirit okay and if you those few of you who are still here that didn't remember the class I taught on the Holy Spirit for the adult class in 2014 or something like that does anybody remember that far back that's hard to remember yeah 
Um, but we emphasize and pointed out how often Ruach shows up in the Old Testament talking about the Spirit of Yahweh. So there's nothing new added in the New Testament, right? It didn't, didn't just all of a sudden the Holy Spirit didn't just show up in the New Testament. He's been there all along, right? And so we had fun with that. And this was one of the verses. I was teaching, uh, um, I was teaching that, that class in Peru. I was in Trujillo, Peru. I was teaching that class in 2007. And my co-teacher was one of my seminary professors, Knox Chamlin, who's now dead. But Knox was probably the most gracious person you'd ever meet. He's the guy you want to live next door to you. He's, he's like your father, your grandfather, your pastor. I mean, for everybody. He's wonderful. And I got done teaching that class and brought up this verse and pointed out the Baruach, Baruach um, being the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of God's mouth. And he goes, he says to me afterwards, he says, thank you so much for pointing out to everyone the word and the spirit because we often forget those two. Right, so the word does not act on its own. The spirit must be involved, right? Okay. Uh, so notice the agrarian similes in verse 7 for water. It's quite picturesque. I like it. I think it's pretty cool. But notice how it, it doesn't fit in some senses, right? He gathers the waters of the sea as a, as a heap, right? So think about grain, wheat. You gather, you harvest it and bring it up into a heap. And then uh, he puts the deeps in where? Storehouses. It's not a, this is a simile. These are, these are just word pictures, but it's, it's a really cool, the agrarian word picture, because most of the folks that would be singing this psalm initially would have been agrarian. They'd all been har- farmers. And they would have said, oh, yeah, I know what that's about, right? He piles it up and stores it up, and he controls it. What Fred was talking about providence. He controls it, holds on to it. And so forth. And I thought that was a great, a, a wonderful little simile. Yeah. It is. And so then you'd bring in the picture of like in a heap, right? So the idea is he controls all that. He preserves it. There's only so much water in the world anyways, right? And so he actually, there's a, there's a release, there's refreezing, there's re-solidifying, and then releasing again and all those things and all that goes in there. Yes, yes, he's in control of it. So every day that there's not a flood, give thanks to the Lord. And when there is a flood, give thanks that it's actually as detrimental and destructive as it may be, that it's actually restrained. It could destroy the whole world. But guess who said, promised that he would not destroy the whole world with a flood anymore? So who controls even those, right? Yes, Cindy. Well, yes, yes, I would think the same thing. I mean, there's all kinds of background stories. So you think of, or the Jordan. The Jordan pushed all the way back up stream, right? And then so it's piled up. Same thing. Yeah, you should be getting all that Old Testament store should be coming in as well, okay? So word and worship should lead us to a response. And that's where we're going to go in verse 8 and 9. Response number one. So what response is being called for in verses 8 and 9? Yeah, fear the Lord and stand in awe. Yeah, okay, very good. That's not, I mean, yeah. And so, um, 
Is there any support given for the, the reaction? Maybe another four. Yes, because he spoke. For he spoke and it came to be, he commanded. Right? So once more, in some ways, calling creation. Notice that he's calling, David is actually calling all creation and its inhabitants to worship the Lord, to fear God and to stand in awe of Him. Once more, in some ways, calling all creation and all of its inhabitants to worship is a Christian duty, and it's exhibited in such songs like the doxology. Praise God. We're inviting all to come in and worship. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures. Where? Here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That's a Christian duty. We're just being biblical. When you use a doxology, we're calling all creation and all of its inhabitants to come and gather at the Lord's feet who made and sustains all. Right? So very fitting for us to do that. So let me talk about the fear of the Lord for a minute. And I'm going to quote Ralph Davis extensively here. Um, this is in his little book called uh, In the Presence of My Enemies. A God this mighty, think about verse 7 and 8, a God this mighty and massive should stir a proper response from his world. All the earth should be afraid of Yahweh. That's his translation, should be afraid of Yahweh. All the world residents should feel dread of him. That's what it means literally in the Hebrew for stand in awe of him. Please don't anyone spout nonsense like, this doesn't mean we should be afraid, just that we should have reverence. No, you should be afraid. You should feel dread. It should intimidate you. Seeing his work in creation should buckle your knees. And then it may produce reverence. But don't try to bypass the fear and trembling with your... This is his statement, not mine. I'm just quoting it with your canned pastel explanations, a classic Ralph Davisism. But I think that's really important. We too easily want to run and say, well, the fear of the Lord, that just means reverencing Him. But we go there, you've skipped about three steps, right? Just think of Isaiah 6. Here's a prophet of the Lord. He knows the Lord. And in the year that Uzziah dies, he goes into the temple, he sees Yahweh high and lifted up. And what does, what does Isaiah do? Woe is me! I am coming undone! Because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. He's afraid. Right? It's a very fitting. Knowing who God is and knowing... It should, ju- it should just throw us over as we think about it. He's not to be toyed with. That's really the point is, right? There's a real fear there. Now, it doesn't mean we have to be like Martin Luther and run around and be anxious and be obsessed with that fear because remember verse 5b, the earth is full of the steadfast love of Yahweh. And I think in our world, maybe it'd be great if some people were afraid of God finally. You know what I'm saying? So, it's a great statement. Oh, yeah. 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 
Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, right. Yeah, it's a good example. Yeah, yeah. What's interesting is that the volcano is destructive, right? So we understand the day of the Lord, right, the day of judgment. But David is saying we should be afraid because of the goodness of the Lord. He created and sustains all things. That should shock the socks off of us, right? So here he's actually using, uh, we would say, uh, maybe he's coming from a different, a positive approach, but you're exactly right, okay? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, remember that, that if you're at a volcano and it starts to erupt and you're running going, oh, this is a great thing. There's new things coming. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. All right, so contrast and control, verses 10 through 12. So listen again to verses 10 through 12. And listen for the contrast and control. Yahweh brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of Yahweh stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh, the people whom He has chosen as a heritage. Derek Kinder puts it this way as he's drawing uh, why these three verses show up now. He says, to speak of nature's obedient glory is to be reminded of man's blatant defiance. I thought that was an interesting way to put it. You see uh, creation's obedient glory, right, is that it submits to the Lord, is created, formed, and sustained by the Lord, and it knows it, and then, oh, but humans aren't that way. Boom! Verses 10 through 12, right? So develop the contrast between 10 and 11. What's the contrast between verse 10 and verse 11? Yeah. One's impermanent, the other's permanent. Right? And it's the Lord who actually makes the counsels of humans crumble. Hmm. Think about that for a minute. Why do you need to recite this, verse 10 and 11, and recall it almost every day of the week? Right? Worried about conspiracies? Remember verse 10. Worried about a, a government that's betraying you? Remember verse 10. Right? Worry, are you worried about those things? Come back to verse 10 and verse 11. Who can you put your confidence in? You know it will actually happen. And who do you know it may not happen? It may not happen because they're not really as in control as they want you to believe. Right? How powerful is verse 10 and 11? No. But what's amazing is a king writes this. Here's David, the king, and he writes this. And he's basically saying, I know. I mean, I know I'm not in control. I remember reading uh, Ulysses S. Grant's memoirs, and he said all the way through his memoirs. He kept talking about, you know, I had these great plans, and they never worked out, you know. And it's like, it's all out of my control. I just do my part, but the end result is something totally different. 
Same exact thing. Okay? I love verse 10 and 11. Right. Right. And I see a lot of Christians worry. A ton. And it's all over the place. And I have to deal with it all the time. And it's really... But verse 10 and 11 is extremely important. One thing to be concerned and make plans, but you always make them tentative because you know, you know, this this refers to your plans as well. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing, frustrates the plans of the peoples. And so even our plans can get frustrated. So our confidence, the point is, our confidence, don't go anywhere with this, our confidence is supposed to be in the Lord. That's where we're supposed to be. Okay? And I think that's extremely important. Right. I'm agree with you, Moose. The problem is, is that a lot of Christians think they're the Savior. I'm just, I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you. That's, my, that's the reality. And so that's why we need to hear verse 10 and 11 and think about it all the time. Yes, Fred. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Yes, Bob. Oh, Bob had it. Hold on a second. I'm going to start a new group called WA, Warriors Anonymous. Hi, my name is Mike. I'm a, I'm a recovering warrior. Right, right. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Good. I have, yes. Go ahead.
So how does verse 12 then warm your heart? Thinking about verse 12 growing out of that contrast of verse 10 and 11, how does it warm your heart? Blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh and the people whom He has chosen as His heritage. Yeah. Yeah, the people whom he has chosen as his, her- as his heritage. I'd have to go back and look. It's probably Goy. Could be very well Goy. I'd have to look at it. Just nation. Yeah, yeah. But the fact that, um, yeah, yeah. I'll just leave it there. Goy, G-O-Y. So when, if, a, if, a, if, Jews, if a Jews say, oh, you're Goyim, they're, just, they're actually insulting you. Or say, you're part of the Gentiles, the peoples, you know. But Goy can often, in singular, can often just be the nation. I'd have to go look at it. But notice that, so unlike David, God's chosen people are no longer a nation state. Just go read the Westminster Confession, for example, right? It'll tell you, it lays it out there. That, that that's the case. We're no longer a nation state, but we are, if you think about 1 Peter 2, we are, the Christian people are His holy, what? Nation. Right? That, and that transcends geopolitics and boundaries and all those things. This is not about the United States of America. This is about the church of Jesus Christ. Right? How comforting is that to know Oh, wherever we're at, wherever our people are throughout the world, nations conspire all the time. Peoples try to put plans together to wipe out, you know, Christians here and there or to shut them down or stop them and know that all their plans are fruitless because the Lord's plans never fail. And so our confidence is in Him. The point is, is our confidence is in Him. It should warm our heart. It doesn't preclude what Bob was saying about being concerned and, and being active, there is a tentativeness, though, realizing even our plans come to nothing. Right? And so we go at it the best we can, but our confidence is where? Is our confidence in our political action committee? Is our confidence in our voting? Is our confidence in our legislation? No, our confidence should be verse 11. Right? And that's the big point. And so then, how blessed is the people, the nation that God has chosen, who remembers that. How blessed. Great. So verse 10 through, yeah, Moose, 10 through 12. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Sure. I love the way the Confession puts it, the Westminster Confession, chapter 5, paragraph 8, is it's talking about providence. This is the last paragraph on providence, and I, they're drawing from, like, Psalm 33. As the providence of God doth in general reach to all creatures. That's the first part of Psalm 33, right? So, after a most special manner, it taketh care of His church and disposeth all things to the good thereof. That's verses 10 through 12. Right, and that's also Ephesians chapter 1, 15 through 23. I could just pile more on there. But I like the way they put that. And it has a, 
uh, he disposes, he has a, disposes all things to the good thereof. He takes a special care of his church. Okay? And that's verse 12. Are you ready to move on? All right, here we go. So war and wonder, verses 13 to 19. And again, I'm, I'm amazed, as Steve's pointed out, I'm amazed. Here's a warrior writing this. Right? Here's a warrior writing this. And what he ends up saying here. So look at verses 3 through 19. So based on the previous three verses, 10 through 12, it's no surprise that the sacred songwriter comes here to war and wonder. So look for repeated statements that emphasize a universal sense. Yahweh looks down from heaven, he sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. The warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. You hear any repeats there that give you a that David really is saying all as in universal for sure? How many times does the word all show up? Yeah, at least four, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Goes out with a sling and five stones and a staff. Yeah. Absolutely, and, and he's watching, and he's also, notice it's interesting, uh, he, he who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds, so inside and outside, inside of us and outside of us, right? There's more I could say about the fashions of our hearts, but, so where is the war part and where is the wonder part? As you're looking at those verses. Um, well, okay, verse 15, he who fashions the hearts of them all. Just the, the recognition that uh, we're not victims. We can actually be victims, don't get me wrong. But we're not victims. Right? The Lord is actually involved in fashioning our hearts. And so what may be traumatic for one person um, does not have to be detrimental in the end. Right? So the Lord can actually use that fashioning our hearts. Change. So our personalities are part of His providence, our dispositions and so forth. And so how often should we then maybe, instead of saying, you know, I'm just a victim of my genes or something, right? How often maybe should we say, Lord, you're the one who fashions the hearts of all peoples. Fashion my heart. This is, this is my experience. Take over, right? Shape me, guide me, change me personality-wise even. Okay, that's kind of what I had in mind, yeah. So where's the war part and where's the wonder part? When you look at those verses. Yeah, all the army language, all the war language, verse 16 and 17. There's the war. 
Yeah. Yeah, right. So verse 13 through 15 is more the wonder, and then verse 18 and 19 is more the wonder. So I find that interesting that the war part is a small portion right in the middle that are surrounding it is the wonder of the Lord who's over and works in all of these things and over all these things, right? I'm sorry? Yeah. Yeah. It is sandwiched. Yeah. Referring to verse 16 and 17. What did I... Oh, I know what I'm saying. Okay. Sorry. Sometimes I forget what I put down. Okay. So referring to verse 16 and 17, the war horse and the, the king saved by mighty army, etc. Derek Kidner puts it this way in his little commentary. The place of these verses in the paragraph. So we just talked about them being sandwiched, right? So the place of these verses in the paragraph is to emphasize that God is not only all discerning, verses 13 through 15, but all prevailing. Even now, in a corrupt world, force has not the last word. I think that's really an important statement. Force has not the last word. Where it does succeed, the Old Testament assures us that this is by a divine decree, not by its own ability. Can anybody think about it? There are two references up here, but can you think of one scene where God says, I raised up this nation, it's my instrument of discipline and punishment, but it's, it's arrogant, and I will turn around when I'm done using it, I will break it. Assyria, right? Isaiah 10. Isn't that interesting? So that, that, that's extremely helpful for us to realize, even in a corrupt world, force does not have the last word. And even when it does seem to triumph for a bit, we realize that God is in control and He will bring, He will do what He's going to do with even those forces. Okay? I think that's really important. Alright, so still dealing with war and wonder. Uh, there's a divergence of hopes. Verse 17 and then verse 18, what's this divergent of hopes? Or, or, or divergence is not the right word. Um, we could call contrast or whatever. But two different kinds of hopes. And what kind of a hope is the war horse? A false hope. Okay? And then what's the other hope? The steadfast love of the Lord, right? Um, verse 18 on those who hope in his steadfast love. In fact, in the Hebrew, the false hope is actually, doesn't even use the word hope, it actually is re- usually refers to uh, the vanity of an idol, okay? But it's a falsehood. So a war horse is a falsehood and a false thing to put your confidence in. And, it, you know, if you, go, if, if you were to ever go into military, if you were to go into combat, there's always the fog of war. Nothing works the way it's supposed to. Sand gets into the chamber and the round doesn't load right. And you can just go through a whole list of things that happens, right? It's a false hope. Okay, it doesn't mean you shouldn't use them if you're in that situation. But I'm just saying it's a false hope. Right? And that's kind of his point he's bringing out there. It's a vanity to trust in those powers. So there's the two different hopes. So based on verses 13 through 17, where do 18 and 19 want us to land? Where does verse 18 and 19 want us to land?
I'm sorry? Yes. Confidence in the God's sovereignty, right? Behold, the eye of Yahweh is on those who fear Him, on those who hope in His steadfast love, that He may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. So putting our confidence in the right place. I still, I find it intriguing. Here's a warrior writing this, and he's saying exactly that. He's saying, you know, it'd be very tempting to, to fall into the trap of thinking my military might is superior to everybody else's and I can trust it, but the reality is I can't trust it. It's a false hope. I can only trust the one who holds me in his hand, and that's where we should always end up. Yes. 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 No, that's good. So, so verses 13 to 17, I want you to land with... Uh, um, want you to come to this recognition, but then that recognition is going to take you to then verses 20 through 23. Okay? Okay, 22. 20, 21, 22. That's it. I just did the math wrong. So, uh, Derek Kidner again says, even the relentless scrutiny in verses 13 through 15 was an implied blessing in a world of injustice. Here it is manifestly quick-eyed love. It should be a D here, sorry. Quick-eyed love, alert to danger, sensitive to need. Talking about the Lord in the the midst of uh, that, recognizing the relentless scrutiny should bring us confidence in Him, trusting that He knows. Absolutely. Great. Okay, so then, seeing as Alberta has given us our segue, we're moving then to verses 20 through 22, or 23, if you have 23 there. So the psalm begins with shouts for joy and exuberant thanksgiving. It moves toward fear and awe, and it ends where? Verses 20 through 22. Yeah, confident trust, right? Hoping, waiting on the Lord, waiting for the Lord. Um, serving Him, confident in Him, right? And then you're, because uh, He is our help and our shield. In fact, we even sing uh, a mighty fortress, which is not referring to this psalm, it's actually referring to Psalm 46, and yet the same sentiment is there, He is our help and our shield, right? Martin Luther goes on in that song to say, even if the devils and Satan himself rails against the Word, we have this confidence that the Lord will provide, and He'll, he'll prevail, and so our confidence is there our help and our shield. Very good. So these three verses begin with a statement and they end with a prayer. So notice that verse 20 and 21 is a statement. It's a proclamation, a declaration of what we're doing. Our soul waits for Yahweh. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. And then comes the prayer at verse 22. Let your steadfast love, O Yahweh, be upon us even as we hope in you. And I find that interesting because... Back up in verse 5, and then in verse uh, 18, uh, verse 5 specifically, if the earth is full of the steadfast love of Yahweh, some people would say, well, then why do I need to pray for it? No, the fact that it's there is fitting to pray for it, right? Pray for it, that you would experience more of it. You would actually come to see it. As I said a minute ago in, the prayer, in our prayer, we're swimming, I'll say it in the sermon, 
we're swimming in the steadfast love of the Lord so much that we're numb to it. We don't see it because we're so plentifully, it's poured out on us so plentifully, we're just blind to it. And so how fitting that prayer is actually that we would, is drawing from the, uh, drawing us in, uh, that we would actually begin to see the steadfast love of the Lord that we're blind to. Fred? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And what's also interesting is that if, if this is written to go along with Psalm 32, which is what it looks like, Psalm 32, I've sinned. I tried to hide my sin. I lied to you about my sin, and now I come clean about my sin. And then comes Psalm 33. And it's, a, it's just amazing grace. Oh, yeah, the Lord's steadfast love can, persists even with his people who sometimes want to hide their sins, right? Yeah. Yeah, yep. So real quick, um, we don't have much time to do any of this, but maybe when you think about it this day, describe uh, ways this psalm encourages you. In uh, what life seasons or other situations should you return to this psalm with urgency time after time? And how have you been prepared for the morning worship assembly today? So you go through Psalm 33. So there you go. I'm not going to ask those questions I asked them, but we're not going to talk about them because of time. So, but maybe you can take those and ponder those. So let's pray. Well, Lord of God, we confess to you that we often put our confidence in our own strength, in our own might, our own skill, our own prowess, our own politics, our own whatever. And sometimes we put too much confidence there and forget you. We pray, Lord, that you would bring again home to us that it's your counsel that stands forever. It's the plans of your heart that goes on to all generations. How blessed really is the nation whose God is Yahweh, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. And so we do ask you that your steadfast love, O oh Lord, would be upon us even as we hope in you. And so now, Lord, prepare our hearts and our minds, our bodies, as we, prepare, as we move into the assembly to worship and adore you, the God whose steadfast love endures forever. Amen.